Okay, hi everyone and welcome to the Sonogenetics Podcast. I'm Patrick. If you can't tell, I have a little bit of a cold today, um, but I will try to keep my energy high and I don't think it'll be a problem with this guest. So I'm, I'm very excited to have Gemma Stunt here. So Gemma and I actually only met a couple of weeks ago at the Action Duchenne International Conference. So Action Duchenne is a nonprofit for families affected by Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And at the conference, Gemma was part of a panel with a few other people talking about experience in clinical trials. Um, and from the moment that I heard Gemma, and actually we met a little bit earlier in the day, I was, I was amazed by her level of energy and proactivity when it came to getting a diagnosis for her uh, son, Bertie, with Duchenne, and then uh, actually seeking enrollment in a clinical trial afterwards. So I basically went up to her after the panel and said, I think other people need to hear your story, not just families that have children with rare conditions, but anyone affected by a, a, a genetic condition, and also researchers to give a little bit of perspective of what it's like to actually participate in a clinical trial and how families go about um, getting into these clinical trials. So with that long preamble, uh, I'm very excited to have Gemma Stunt with me here today. Hi, Patrick. So just to get started, would you mind just introducing yourself, what you do, a um, little bit about uh, you know, how you got into the Duchenne space and some of your experience so far? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so hi, everybody. Um, my name's Gemma. I have a five-and-a-half-year-old son, Bertie, um, who has a condition, a rare disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, as a high-level overview, Duchenne is caused by a genetic mutation in the DMD gene, which means that he cannot produce a functional uh, protein called dystrophin. Um, dystrophin is a very vital protein that's required for muscle use. Um, and without this protein, um, over a, a period of time, the muscles, uh, skeletal muscles, heart muscles, uh, lung muscles, all deteriorate. Um, and as, as it stands today, our boys are, are often lost between 20 uh, and 30 years old to the condition. So when we received diagnosis of this in, on the 12th of December 2018, so uh, a little under a year ago, um, we were made aware that there was no cure, there was no real viable treatment uh, for the condition. And so our only real option was to, to look at the clinical trials that were available um, uh, for some of the treatments that, that uh, scientists and doctors were trying to to work out whether they would would delay the onset of the disease um, or something a little more curative. So could you just take us back to the the moment where you received the diagnosis? Was it a big uh, shock to you or or did you actually kind of have quite a bit of suspicion of that it was Duchenne? I'm, I'm sure you knew something was going on, but yeah, what was it like in that moment? Um, yeah, the actual day of genetic diagnosis, the 12th of December, um, I, I was 95% sure that it, it was, it was Duchenne and Duchenne is only confirmed by really genetic diagnosis. However, prior to that, from the point that we first got sent to a doctor and a pediatrician for some balance issues that Bertie had, 
I'd never heard. I'd heard of muscular dystrophy, but I'd never heard of Duchenne specifically. Um, and the time between sort of those very early uh, medical appointments with um, kind of standard doctors, standard paediatricians, to the point of just genetic diagnosis was, was around eight weeks. So I spent eight weeks researching, learning, questioning, joining Facebook groups, reading medical articles. I, I don't have a medical or scientific background. I'm a, uh, an IT salesperson. Um, so I had to very quickly learn some of the terminologies and try and map Bertie's symptoms and what we've been told by the doctors to what um, other families had experienced and, and unfortunately what, what, what Dr. Google was telling me. Right. What did, what did you find most helpful during that period? Was it Facebook groups, Dr. Google, or, or was it ever you, you were just, I, I'm imagining you at home with kind of papers stacked up on the desk <laughs> and multiple tabs open. Is that what it was like? Yes, um, that's exactly what it was like. It was um, researching any spare. I've got two young boys. Only one is affected by Duchenne. Um, so outside of sort of being at doing my general mum duties, yeah, it was spent researching, it was spent reading websites. And when the websites um, no longer answered the questions I had, which became more and more technical um, as, as I read more, I then had to default to uh, Dr. Google, but not so much Dr. Google, where more asking the questions I had and then trying to find the answers within medical papers um, right. but the problem is again because of my background I didn't understand half of well 90% of what was written because it was written in a scientific or a medical language with terminology that meant nothing to me so I actually went out um, to within my local community my local Facebook group and said are there any doctors that exist are there any scientists that exist um, within the muscular dystrophy world that can help me decipher what I'm reading and explain some things to me and as absolute luck luck coincidence of call it whatever you would like um, a lady came forward who um, uh, Dr Linda Popperwell and uh, Linda Popperwell works at the Royal Holloway which is just down the road and they are actually have a team that is entirely focused on developing uh, molecular based therapies and treatments uh, for Duchenne. So um, I, I obviously jumped on her and wow, said, yes. you know, my son's got Duchenne, I believe. I, I need some help. And, and we met a number of times so I could get a more in-depth understanding of, of what I was trying to read and, and what it meant and, and what was going on. So I, I had a helping hand in my learning process, a very, very good helping hand. That's wonderful. And, and like, like, other, like many other parents that have a child affected by a rare disease, you do very quickly become an expert, don't you? I mean, you, mm. you reading these medical papers probably in the course of eight weeks went from knowing very little to being able to school most of the doctors who are non-specialists on the genetics and the potential treatments and, and how it might manifest and all those sorts of things, right? Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Um, our local pediatrician at our local hospital, um, we do six monthly appointments with him, but actually 
I, he, I, I tell him, um, and I understand that it's, it, it's a rare disease. It's a very complicated disease. Um, and we, you have to move away from the mindset that all doctors know everything because actually they don't. So you have to come to terms with a number of, of assumptions that you probably previously had before diagnosis about the medical and scientific community um assuming that everybody knows everything right. they don't so yes i spend time educating doctors and uh and pedi- pediatricians um which, of, which is fine yeah and and i think the hopefully the world is changing to the point where people no longer uh view it as a as a one direction relationship where the the doctor tells the patient or the parent what to do we give dr google a very hard time but actually it's easier today than ever before to be an expert in something and and to have it be a true two-way relationship right um yes but we do also still live um maybe it's a, a british thing it could be a worldwide thing i i, I can't really comment but we still do live in in a world of hierarchy where um, it's we it's very easy to assume and and believe that because a man or a woman has trained for so many years to be a, a pediatric consultant or to be to be a doctor even even to a certain degree a, a GP um, that they would know more than you and there are a lot of parents many parents that still are um too respectful um to um defer to the authority yeah yeah don't want to question the authority of a doctor even if what they believe they've learned is actually different to what they're being told but when you have a child with a rare disease your job quickly becomes to question everything, right. especially when there is no cure, when there is no real viable treatment and there isn't really any options on the landscape. You have to question everything. You have to ask questions that, that you don't even know that your doctor knows the answer to or, or your consultant or whoever. It's, it, it, the tables turn very, very quickly. What has been the best experience that you've had with a doctor? Have you had a really good experience where a specialist has, uh, you know, you ask a question, they don't know the answer and they say, it's actually, it's a great question. I'll get back to you. Have you had any really positive examples in that, in that way? Not from doctors or consultants. No, unfortunately right. not. Um, from an, from an NHS perspective, um, even for our neuromuscular doctor, a consultant up in the specialist unit up in, in, uh, up in London, they they're just too busy. They've got too right. many patients, and um, on the day of genetic diagnosis, we were told, "Here's a website to go to for clinical trials. Go and find the clinical trials that you want to go on." And 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 really, and, and oh, that was man. that was yeah, that was it. However, I would I would quite clearly and happily say that the network of scientists and geneticists that I have built over the past sort of 11 and a half, almost 12 months are willing to do that, are willing to say, do you know what? I don't know the answer to that, so I'll go away and they will come back and, and help you. Or they will quite ha- freely say, do you know what? I just don't know the answer to that, but right. here's someone that might be able to help you. 
Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Maybe we can we can figure out how to well, and like you say, they're so busy that the it's 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 very hard to carve out that time of the day. But I think it's so important yeah. because the the profession is a is a is a human one, right? And you need to um, you know you, you need to be caring for the whole person and the whole family, and not just firefighting all the time. But it's it's a systemic yeah. challenge. So on the, on yeah. back to the the point about clinical trials that you just mentioned. So you received the diagnosis, and then they said uh, there's this website. Did they send you to clinicaltrials.gov or something like that and say? Yes, yes, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. So so for people who've never used that or heard of it before, would you mind ex- just explaining what that was like, and maybe take us back to your first um, experience using that and trying to figure out what was going on? So clinicaltrials.gov is a a website, a a database whereby any clinical trial that is is being run in the world, regardless of disease or condition or reason, um, uh, a pharmaceutical company or a scientific centre or a medical centre has to log um, their the beginning of, of, of a clinical trial, it, they get allocated a reference number. So for this reason, it's kind of um, a website that is the absolute central database of all clinical trials that exist for anything that's running. And, and it literally can be anything, anything from boldness, you know, trials to obesity trials to, to, the, to the, 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 the clinical trials and for, for rare diseases. Um, it's a very simplistic website. It's um, it's very easy to navigate. You put in the condition that whereby you, you want to to learn about uh, clinical trials. You select a number of parameters around what sort of trial you're looking for, whether it's within a particular age group, uh, uh, whether it's male or female, whether it's by country or location. Um, whether they're rec- whether the clinical trial is actively recruiting or it's closed and, and all these sort of things. And then you get up a list of, of all the clinical trials that apply to the parameters that you have you have um, set set forth. Um, and it, it's easy, it's very easy to navigate and it is very informative. Um, it, it's and it's it's quite basic but it it works. Sometimes simple is good, right? You don't need all, you, you just need all the information and then you can, you can find what you're looking for. Did you find the, the jargon challenging there? Because I've read uh, hundreds of these clinical trials brief and, and they're often very difficult to understand exactly what's going on because um, they have names of molecules and names that, you know, names of genes and all sorts of things. Did you find that a challenge or, or were you up to speed enough at that point in the Duchenne uh, literature and world that you were able to, to pretty quickly parse through them? Um, well, it, it's really about considering what part of the information that you're looking for at is important. The, the molecular name, when you're very, very first starting, the molecular name of the, the drug or the treatment or, or the, the therapy that, that they're trying to trying to put to trial um, wasn't wasn't important what was important to me and I, and I did it in a very sort of focused process driven way I wanted to understand what what it was that that molecule or compound or whatever was trying to achieve 
was it potentially curative? Was it just a, uh, a, a, a an attempt at a delay onset of the disease? Was um, was the uh, uh, outcomes easily measurable? Because what you have to remember is, if you're going to enter a trial, you have to make sure that the trial outcomes are are sensible. If if uh, and I can only use Duchenne. I'm not I'm not particularly familiar with any other um, rare diseases. But with Duchenne, if they said, well, you know, our, our primary outcome for this trial would be completely curative, you would know that, that that's not really going to be uh, achieved in, in such a, a quick way. Right. Albeit that, that doesn't really exist. The other factors that for us as a family was important was that we agreed that we wouldn't want to go onto a phase one trial. Trials are run in typically three phases. Phase one is um, to to work out the um, safety and tolerability of the drug. So, is it is it tolerable in a human? Will it cause any harm? And what dosage is optimal to what for the treatment for what it's trying to achieve? Um, and is it is it ultimately safe? Because as we as we well know, all of these drugs would have been pre tested in animals and would have had uh, a good safety and tolerability record within animals. However, that doesn't always translate to to humans. So a phase one never actually measures how effective the treatment is at doing what it says that it would like to do. None of that is measured. But for us as a family, looking at a phase one, um, especially with Duchenne, when you're talking about gene therapies, which is basically gene editing, when you're talking about oligonucleotides, which is exon skipping, and you're talking about actually changing what the gene does, it can become quite risky and there can be a lot of toxicity um, issues. And again, going back to what I said about creating a network of scientists and uh, researchers and things, I had already learned um, from Linda Popperwell to watch out for for things like toxicity, kidney, you know, acute kidney damage, you know, and, right. and various other things that can be caused. So when I looked, I said, okay, I actually only want to look at a phase two or three because by which case the tolerability and the safety had been had been completed and the FDA had approved the, the, the continuation of the trial. Um, so the other things to also that must be very clearly considered is does your does your child or do you, um, whoever is looking at a clinical trials, do they meet the criteria um, to be enrolled? Because if they don't meet the criteria, then that, there's absolutely no point in looking at that trial whatsoever. The, the clinical trial um, process is incredibly tightly controlled and therefore there's no bending of the rules as such or no... Okay, well, we said we said that that this trial couldn't be up to eight-year-olds, but you've got a nine-year-old, so yeah, we'll let you're eight, you're eight and a half, that, so come on in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that doesn't exist. So it's a matter of literally, and the great thing about clinicaltrials.gov is you can actually export it into an Excel spreadsheet. So all the ones that applied to to the to, to the criteria that I had set, I exported, and then I could go through them in more detail to understand you know, did Bertie meet the criteria? If it didn't, okay, got deleted. That's completely irrelevant to me. If he did, were there were there any were they recruiting? 
because there's no point in looking at a child that isn't recruiting. Um, and if if they were recruiting, were they allowing international patients if um, it was an American site or a European site, or were there any trial sites in the UK? For us as a family, we had also made the decision we would quite happily travel, um, travel to another country, to another right. continent uh, for a trial. So it's about matching the criteria of the trials that fits the person that, that needs to go on the trial, but also the decisions that that you're willing to make or, or the, the risks that you're willing to take as a family. And that's a very personal choice. What fraction, do you remember about what fraction of the trials you that were originally on your list ended up kind of making it to your short list of they seem, you know, they're phase two or phase three, so so they should be safe. They, you know, my son seems like he fits the criteria. They're within a reasonable traveling distance. Do you, do you remember how big that first list was and then how much you got it down to? Um, yes, so I got it down to nine nine trials that fitted us and we fitted them um and then i think i contacted because our neuromuscular consultant had kind of made it quite clear that we were on our own when it came to trial uh, to the to going on a clinical trial i contacted the pharmaceutical companies responsible for the trial and also all the medical centers that were were running the trials even in some cases multiple trial centers for the same trial because some might be recruiting some might already be full some might not be recruiting yet right um and i think i got it down to with the, with the responses that i got um i think i got it down to a final three the only downside to clinicaltrials.gov is it's only as up to date as the kind of trial coordinator that's managing that application makes it so right. you can have a clinical trial that says it's recruiting and actually that that information's out out of date um that's probably one of the most frustrating things about it but yeah i think i got it down to the final three and and uh what what was their response like did you have to email multiple times or call or or did did they get right back and because one of the things we often hear is clinical trials, one of the biggest risks to them succeeding or failing is not finding enough people or the right people in the right amount of time and they're incredibly expensive to run. So was your experience that mm -hmm. as soon as you got in, as soon as you got in touch with them and, and you'd kind of already done the hard work to figure out that your son is probably a fit, were they, were they ready to put you on a plane and enroll you the next day or did it take some, um, some following up to do? Um, it, it, the answer to that varies. So, um, of the nine that I contacted, I would say four or five responded within a few weeks. And I, I think it's important to also say that when I contacted them, I took a very, um, medical, uh, knowledgeable approach to the information I gave them. It was non-emotional. Here's my son. Here's his right. age. Here's his mutation. Here's his phenotype. We are interested in this trial. Could you send us more information? It was. It wasn't. A, Please, can we get on your trial? Yeah. We really need it. You know, uh, sort of an emotional response. It was very factual and to the point and, and short. And actually, it was a. 
we're looking for more information about your trial and whether it's still open and recruiting. And as many of them are run in the US, are you taking international patients? So I, I, I think it was about four that responded within a couple of weeks without any chasing. Um, some of them said, no, we're no longer recruiting. One said, oh, your son doesn't fit, meet the criteria. Um, because it seems that they'd changed the criteria but hadn't changed it on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, and the last one um, came back within, so I sent the emails on the 14th of December, two days after genetic diagnosis. And by the 2nd of January, I was, she had come back to me to say that they'd had the go ahead for the phase three and could we get on a call to discuss Bertie's participation. Wow. Did did someone give you the advice to write uh, to to write the initial request in that kind of very technical and and uh, not passionate way, or or was that your sales background of saying uh, I think you mentioned at the conference that you wanted to feel like they wanted you, not that you were begging your way onto the trial, mm-hmm. which I think is a really important point. Was that did did you basically? Think, put your sales hat on and think I'm not going to, you know, write them a five paragraph essay of, of why we need to be involved and I'm going to approach it very, very logically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I was probably drawing on my sales experience as humans when we receive an email of about a particular subject that is not emotional to us, we can generally kind of digest about two paragraphs um whether it's somebody trying to sell insurance to you or whether somebody is is trying to to tell you about their son they weren't going to read a five paragraph email and it's also about being um systematic about it they they don't need to know that that you know, you're very sad and you're upset and you desperately want to find a cure. They just need the facts because medical, you know, me- medical people and scientific people, A, are very systematic themselves because of the nature of their jobs, but also because I'm sure they receive hundreds and hundreds of emails from parents or clinicians or scientists around the world about clinical trials and no doubt about many, many other things as well. So I needed to make it an email that they could read quickly and make a very quick decision yes this is an interest no it's not um and that i felt was the best way of of getting a quick and decisive answer on on moving forward and if they didn't respond then um that was fine it was clearly not of right. interest um you know i would i wish they all would have responded but i understand that that they won't i think it's also important to say that Whilst for the Duchenne world, there are a number of centralised kind of patient banks whereby trial centres or pharmaceutical companies can access a pool of patients that could be eligible to put on their trials. That's not what that's not the, the, the data banks aren't great at the moment. There's a lot of work being done to make them better, make them global, make them ensure that we're up to date, but they're not great. So in which case most hospitals or pharmaceutical companies will hold their own database of potential uh, candidates for clinical trials for now and in the future. 
So I always, in, um, because of GDPR, which is more of a European issue than it is an American issue, I always ensured that I, 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 if they did respond to me, I responded back saying, thank you very much for taking the time to respond. Please, you have my full permission to keep all of the details that I have provided on your database for future consideration on other right. trials. And Just I think the- that's quite an important point as well because they're not allowed to retain your details if you haven't given them permission. Right. So you just make it make it super clear if there's any doubt that you want to be included and not, uh, you know, not not deleted because there was some uncertainty about permission. That's that's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is a very important point. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's so many good points here just to you've you've clearly learned a lot through the process. I think other people can can hopefully take something from. So so you got on the phone with the uh, trial coordinator of the trial that you would eventually go on to join. What was the what was the call like? Was it short, long? Did they tell you about the process? They ask about Birdie. Um, it was was the call was actually directly with the pharmaceutical company with the VP of clinical trials. Um, for that pharmaceutical company because not only did I go to the trial centers, I went directly to the pharmaceutical company right. um, as well. With clinical trials, there's often no one clear process of delegation when trying to recruit. Often the pharmaceutical companies will try and recruit and the, the trial centers and doctors and consultants as well. So right. for one trial, you may have to go and speak to excuse me, three different parties in order to get a response from someone. On this occasion, it was the pharmaceutical company, the VP of of, of clinical trials. Um, My husband and I got on a call with her. I already had done enough research into their their molecule uh, to understand what it did or what it was designed to do and what the the hypothesis was behind uh, how it would do it. Um, it was really more, excuse me, it was really more about the logistics of the trial, talking through about Bertie. So we were qualifying them as much as they were qualifying us and Bertie. It was a, it was a very much a two-way call to gather information on, on both sides. What was it about talking to them that, that convinced you that that was the right trial? Because, you know, you can, you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my understanding, well, you, you can almost always only be on one at a time, but even once you've enrolled and once you've enrolled in one, it, it makes it harder to do other ones in the future, right? Yeah, so um, you can only ever be on one clinical trial um, at a time because no um, medical agency or approval agency is going to let you have the, uh, or, or, or let any trial go ahead where you're on on two two discovery drugs at the same time because yep. um, you never know how they might children. mix together. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so I had already decided that this molecule and, and, and what it was designed to do was a good fit for us for that time. Bertie was still was only four and a half. Um, he was doing very well for a, for a Duchenne boy. I felt that we had some time um, to to allocate to a placebo in the case that we went on a placebo i think it's important to consider that pretty much any clinical trial will always have a placebo arm whereby an, a, a, a percentage of the boys or, or people on that clinical trial um let's say 50 50 for simplistic terms 50 percent will get 
the discovery drug and 50% will get a placebo. That is um, a stipulation by the likes of the FDA or the EMA um, to ensure that there is adequate data to prove that the, 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 the drug in question is working compared to um, a placebo. So for us, it was, okay, are we willing to waste a year, because that was the term of the clinical trial, excuse me, on the possibility of being on a placebo and taking that risk. Do we believe that this molecule and the hypothesis about what it does behind it is the sort of drug that um, will help Bertie? Do we genuinely believe that? Do we believe what we've read? Are we impressed enough by the, the mouse data? And also, what phase is it on? This particular one was on a phase three. It was very safe. It was very tolerable. 40 boys had already been on it for a year, year and a half, with absolutely no adverse effects of any sort. The actual molecule didn't interfere with any other systematic workings of, of the body. It had a very specific target and a very specific job to do. And also, importantly to me, I guess because I'm a salesperson, is do I like this person at the pharmaceutical right. company? Do I like this pharmaceutical company? Do I like their ethics? Do I like the way they uh, approach their patients? Because uh, as I think I said, I pointed out, and as I pointed out to many pharmaceutical companies, you know, we aren't doing you a favor by testing your drugs. And you're not doing us a favor by spending, spending billions of dollars on on developing drugs to to fix whatever disease uh, our our loved ones have, it is a mutual partnership, right. and it, it should be mutually beneficial. But it, it should also be it should be kind. It should be a nice relationship, and and that was important to me. Yeah, absolutely, and I and I guess you got that you you got that feeling. So you were you were on a plane to where was it in the U.S. that that the trial was being? Uh, we ended up so we had the so I contacted the pharmaceutical company on the fourteenth of December. By the second of January, we had the conference call and a pre kind of pre screening conversation. I did Bertie meet their criteria. Um, and by the 26th of January, we were on a plane out to Baltimore to wow. the Kennedy Kruger Center at Gen John Hopkins University Hospital um, to do the physical screening and uh, upon approval, first dosing. So how, how long, how many trips did you, did you do or, or will you do in total to the U.S.? And, and how long is each one? Is it a couple of days at a time or weeks? Because I imagine it's a, and you and your husband had the discussion before you decide what to do, but it's a big disruption in terms of your, your life and, and your other son's life. And there's a whole lot to consider, isn't it? There, yeah, there, there is a lot of considerations and I'm not going to lie, it's, it's been hard. The first visit was for a week <clears throat> um, and by the way, Baltimore is no Disneyland. Uh, <laughs> it, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> it is most certainly not. Um, and then we've had to go out uh, once every three months um, uh, since. So I think we came back last month from visit number um and the the, the follow-up visits that we have to do we fly out on a saturday and we're back by wednesday morning we turn ourselves around quite quickly um for us as a family traveling and doing that was no big 
issue. We we're 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 a very positive family. We're a family that get up early and uh, kind of right. Let's just get on with this right. um, kind of attitude. And I actually had a gentleman at one of the conferences I attended, um, Pudushan, turn around and say, you know. Um, you know, we consider that travel is a real burden on families and we don't want to put the burden on, on, on families. And I said, I said, I understand that, but the burden of Duchenne is far bigger than any right. traveling could ever be. So that's the way that we view it. However, we're quite lucky. My job is, it has been very good. Um, I partner in my own company. So my partners in the business have been obviously very flexible when I've needed to go out to the U.S. Um, and my husband's job is um, a very busy, intense job, but they have equally been um, absolutely amazing. So we've had the flexibility to do what we needed to do. But ultimately, we've only actually gone two working days um, with a third working day, getting over a bit of jet lag and unpacking. And right. So it's not actually too bad. But there are many families that decide that's too much or, or don't have the circumstances whereby they have that flexibility. Again, that decision is entirely a, a very, very personal one. Um, and there's no wrong or right answer in, in any of these decisions and, and what you can or cannot do. Absolutely. And, and how much during the trial itself were, were you told, were you told not to try to contact other people who are on the trial, for example, or not to try to guess if it was working or not working or if you're on the placebo how, how much of that did you kind of already know from all the research you've done versus how much did they did they tell you and was that surprising in any way um no so again i guess because of my sales background i figured out that you you, you when you go to the checkups the trial checkups they'll take a lot of blood from my son he does a lot of physiotherapy tests he goes off and has heart tests lung tests um you know, height weight uh literally he's given a, a medical over overhaul every single time he goes but right. we don't we don't get to question it we don't get to ask for the results we don't ever get the results um we weren't told to discuss it with other patients although i do know that a lot of pharmaceutical companies are now putting into place um, a number of uh, restrictions about discussions on social media about clinical trials because there is a legitimate concern from the from the approval bodies, the FDA, the EMA, and, and various other bodies around data sharing, comparison, right. and also um, kind of placebo effects and families trying to work out whether whether their loved one is is on the drug or not. Um, so we didn't get told not to do anything. We knew we weren't allowed to answer the uh, ask any questions. Although right. I did try because if you don't <laughs> ask, you don't get. In my opinion, um, and I was told <laughs> very lovingly and politely, no. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it was worth a try. Um, but you kind of have to. That has to be part of the decision. Right. initially is am I willing to go on this trial where I don't know what it is or isn't going to do I don't know whether I am or I'm not going to get the drug for my for me or for my loved one and you have to be okay with that before you go on a clinical trial because aside from all the, the regulatory issues personally you'll drive yourself up the wall trying for, for a right. whole year trying to figure it out 
And so, I, and I'm conscious of time because I've, I've kept you here for getting, getting close to an hour. Um, what's, so what's next for, for you and for Birdie and for the trial? Is it still ongoing? And, and do you feel like it's, I know it's, it's always very hard to say, but you feel like it's headed somewhere and, and have they given you any indication of what happens after the, the trial concludes? Um, so we've got one more visit left and we were completing our one year trial period. After that one year trial period, we go on to what's called an open label extension. And that is a, basically an automatic um, ad- administration of the, the trial drug. So we will get, we know that on the next visit, the drugs that we are given are the actual drug. They're not a placebo. This particular trial, this particular pharmaceutical company um, has that open label extension open until 2021, which they will then start going to the regulatory bodies for commercial approval to actually make this an approved drug. The next decisions, the next steps, um, because there are other clinical trials that are would be uh, a game changer in, in his disease potentially, as opposed to something that, that delays the onset of the disease are coming up. So next year, we've got a lot of decisions, which is, do we take him off the open label, the drug that he's been on, and that we believe um, is is working for boys? And then to go on another trial. But if we go on another trial, will are we willing to then potentially go through the risk of having a placebo again? Right. If we do want to go on another trial, do we go for one of the big gene therapies whereby once you've done gene therapy, you can't do anything else? Do we sit and wait for approvals? And there's a whole decision tree that has to go that we have to start again on um, in order to to decide the next thing I have already mapped out what I believe and and received consultation on what um, based on the trial uh, timelines and, and what exists what the best course for Bertie would be but that's very personal it's yes. what we believe and the advice we've been given would be best uh, but it is based on a lot of if buts and 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 maybes um the other thing that i think it's quite important to point out that i haven't actually stated is that not many families are made aware but if you want to enroll on an international trial in another country and that pharmaceutical uh, company or that hospital trial center is recruiting international payments uh, patients they will pay for traveling expenses. They will right. pay for flights. They will pay for hotel and they will give you food allowance and things like that. The clinical trials are not reserved for rich people. It's a, it's a, it's very important uh, point to raise. And, and thank you for bringing that up because it, that, that can also be a huge barrier and in some cases a non-starter. So it's good for people to know that you don't have to um, book your own flights back to the U S they'll, it, like you said, it is a it is a collaboration, and it needs both parts, right? So the patients have to be yeah. taken care of and able to go, and and for the pharmaceutical companies to be able to actually get the evidence they need to run their business. Absolutely. Well, great. I just want to say thank you. I think this is going to be an incredible resource for families that have been newly diagnosed with rare diseases that are thinking about how they approach and, and really any, anyone to think about how they approach a clinical trial process from a personal level, as well as, I mean, I think coming from a research background, we tend to think about, uh, we tend to think about these clinical trials in the abstract and there are thousands that happen a year. And I think it's really valuable for researchers to actually 
hear a single person's story of how it actually unfolds on the ground. So I just like to say thank you for taking the time to do it. it it's uh, I, I've learned. I mean, I've learned a ton just listening for the last forty-five minutes. My absolute pleasure.